Thank you. It hardly merits saying that that's a, a tough act to follow. Um, anyway, I'm very pleased, pleased to be here um, with all of you. Uh, over the years, I've run into an awful lot of people who have uh, thought at one time or another of writing a novel. And in fact, it's not at all hard for me to remember uh, having been one of them. I think that I had basically the same idea about what it would be like everyone else usually does before sitting down to actually do it, which is that basically you're going to go upstairs, you're going to have a seat in your you know, garret, and, uh, and, and the ideas are just going to come to you somehow. It'll all just sort of happen. The characters will magically come to life, and there, that there's a kind of magic about it, really, something that happens kind of out of your control. What I don't think I understood at all at the time is that, in fact, writing a novel is something much more like constructing a house. You know, it's a kind of a undertaking that requires of its creator uh, the solving of certain problems to give it a kind of structural integrity. Uh, I think probably every novelist would describe writing a uh, novel differently. But let me, for what it's worth, take a minute to, to tell you what it was like for me uh, to do this one. Um, Strange as it may sound, Memoirs of a Geisha was actually born out of my own experiences. I'm not talking about, I mean, obviously I'm not a geisha. <laughs> although, although I have to tell you that I was in Denver one time uh, giving a talk, and a woman in the audience raised her hand. She said, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Is that you on the cover of the book? So obviously she thought, you know, well, I mean, he's a guy who dresses up on the weekends, you know, and this is, this is how he got interested in geisha. Um, but actually, it was something very different. Um, I'm not talking about experiences that I had in Japan. In fact, I'd never met a geisha before I started research on this book. Uh, I'm talking about experiences in childhood. I uh, was born the youngest of four siblings who were a bit older than I was, who already had a kind of close friendship by the time I, an outsider, you know, came along. And um, when I was seven or so, my parents divorced. My father moved hundreds of miles away. and. Uh, when I was 13, he died of emphysema. So like a great many people, um, I know something of what it's like to feel abandoned and lost and to kind of have to reinvent yourself in um, circumstances that are frightening, you know, really, and to sort of try to please others as a way of ensuring your own um, emotional survival. I think when I first learned about the existence of this world of geisha uh, with these young women who were torn from their families against their wills, to, uh, to have to reinvent themselves in this way, uh, who experienced such a terrible loss at the very beginning of their lives. There was something about it that just uh, resonated with me. Trouble was, uh, I didn't know anything about writing fiction. So I thought you know, that I should follow my impulses, and the story would give rise to itself. For six years, um, I worked on this book. I um, wrote a draft, uh, finally found a geisha interview, realized I'd gotten everything wrong. Three years of work, 750 pages, I threw it away, um, decided to start all over. And uh, at the end of another three years and 750 pages, six years into the project, I uh, passed it along to a friend who was a writer who uh, called me up the next uh, you know, week or so and said, well, uh, I read your book. And then there was this long silence, you know, <laughs> which of course I interpreted as being not a, a particularly good sign. Um, then he said, to tell the truth, which, which is even a, a worse sign, actually. <laughs> to tell the truth, um, well, I found it kind of dry, he said. And I thought, well, you know, he's always seemed like a nice guy, but, uh, you know, here he is getting in touch with his inner jerk at, <laughs> at my expense. 
which I felt was a very uncharitable uh, thing for anyone to do, really. So I kind of stopped listening closely at that point. Turned out, though, that um, this was what I began to hear from everybody who looked at the thing. After six years of work, I turned out a manuscript that uh, it appeared um, nobody really wanted. Uh, everybody found it kind of dry. Uh, I never thought about giving up, is the truth, because uh, this material was just too good. I knew it was too good. I'd done it wrong, but the material itself deserved better. And I couldn't walk away from it at that point. Um, trouble was I had to figure out what I'd done wrong. I'd been following my impulses. That was what I thought writing a novel was supposed to be. But that had uh, gotten me into the state I was in at the moment. So um, I, I chuckled, especially when you said panic was one of the phases. I remember that one vividly. I'm a very analytical person, so I, I put together a kind of analytically reasoned plan of attack. And step one was to have a week-long anxiety attack bordering on panic. And it went off absolutely without a hitch. Um, <laughs> which I thought boded well for how the rest of the program was going to proceed. Um, the trouble, as I came to realize, was that I'd failed to give the material its proper shape. You know, I had been drawn to the world of geisha um, because of its hardships. And what I'd done was written a novel about an adult geisha, five years after World War II, covering her life in a period of five years, after she's had time to adjust all of those hardships. As soon as I began to think about it, it seemed so obviously mistaken to me, I couldn't even imagine why I'd made that decision in the first place. Obviously, I was going to have to go back and start all over with this character in her childhood and follow her through those hardships as she experiences them. The other decision I'd made was to write in uh, third person because um, I'm not a geisha, you know, and I thought it was the only honest way of going about it. But it seemed to me that if I really wanted to give those hardships uh, the treatment that they deserved, I was going to have to take this imaginative leap of trying to become this young woman um, on the page. So I began to ask myself some questions. What was the novel fundamentally about? I imagined a girl, as I say, who loses everything, spends the rest of her life looking for some sort of compensation. She would have to be, it seemed to me, torn away from her family. But the problem was that the historical reality kind of conflicted with that. In uh, Kyoto, at this time in history, in the 1930s, there were, there were a lot of families suffering uh, economic hardship. And as a result, there were a lot of girls for sale to geisha houses. If you wanted to run a geisha house in Kyoto, you didn't need to go anywhere outside the city to, to find all the people you needed. But that wasn't going to work for me, because she could just stroll home again anytime she wanted. There's no real irrevocable loss, at least not the kind I wanted. So I had to make her come from the seashore, it seemed to me. Um, Right away, you know, the, the construction and circumstances of her life begin to suggest themselves. The next question for me was, well, why does she get sent to Kyoto? Well, it seemed to me if her mother's very ill at the beginning of the book and on the point of death, and there's a kindly villager who thinks that he's doing her a favor by sending her off to what he imagines to be a better life than this sort of orphanhood that she faces, um, well, it's easy to imagine her being taken to the station and put onto the train. Uh, she was only seven years old at this point, as I imagined her, and it seemed just a little too much. I gave her a sister, an older sister who was sold with her, that gives her a kind of some sense of hope when she finds herself in Kyoto. The two of them are separated, but at least she has the idea that if she can find her sister, they can run away together and she'll get back home again. But of course, this isn't going to be a novel about uh, reunions. It's a novel about loss. 
So uh, in the end, it was clear to me I was going to have to kill off this uh, sister, so to speak, have her run away without the, uh, without the protagonist, and uh, do away with all the rest of the members of the family by way of pouring, coal, pouring water rather onto the coals to sort of extinguish all of her hopes. I mean, in this way, this novel that I had struggled over and gotten so wrong began once I really thought about what it was I was trying to achieve to, uh, to organize itself. You know, I don't really think that in many ways writing a novel is all that different from um, any other activity. You've got a, a nail, you want to get it out of the wall. In your tool chest, you don't have a clawfoot hammer. So what do you do? You start to get creative. You start to try to think about what you can do to solve the problem. My single favorite example of creativity actually comes from the movie Apollo 13. Um, in it, uh, the astronauts are you know, stranded in the lunar exploration module on their way back to Earth. They've shut down the command module, but the CO2 scrubbers are going bad, and they won't have breathable air much longer. So down in Houston, a bunch of engineers get together, and they throw onto a table one of every single thing. I left out one important detail. There are scrubbers in the command module, but they're like square pegs in a round hole. They won't fit the lunar exploration module's receptacles. and so. The engineers throw onto a table one of absolutely everything to be found in the spaceship. You know, all the foil packets of food and the, the manuals for the computers and everything. Hoses, duct tape. And they say, using this, make this fit into that. You know, so if you ask me who's more creative, a bunch of engineers, doesn't sound like a very creative group of people, or, you know, an, an, an an artsy guy in Soho with, a, you know, with his hair dyed in black clothing. I'll take the engineers every time. You know. That um, brings me to the end of my remarks. And, and let me, can I just tell you about one of the great feelings in life? You think you have eight minutes to talk. And you pare down, and you squeeze, and you cut, and you get the thing down to eight minutes. And then you arrive to find that you have 15 minutes. <laughs> It's like 15 minutes never sounded so long to me before. It's so great. It's like being able to undo your belt, you know, at the end of a big meal and just kind of, I can relax, actually. So this does, in fact, leave me time for questions if there are any. And if there aren't, as far as I'm concerned, you can skip the mic. I'll hear you. I'll repeat the question, and we'll be fine. Spence is probably going to scold me for saying skip the mic, but I'll repeat it. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> You're receiving conflicting instructions. I was just wondering, uh, as a male author, what were, what were the challenges of writing from a first-person female perspective? I mean, that's mm -hmm. kind of difficult for any writer. Well, you've asked, you've asked a very good question, of course. And um, let me answer it like this. I shied away from writing from the point of view of a woman for many years for, all, for that exact reason. When I finally felt that I had to make this leap, I had to also find some reassuring uh, reason why it wasn't impossible to do. And what I came up with was this. If you ask yourself, what does it feel like to be a woman when you wake up in the morning? If you're a guy, how do you imagine that? Well, it turns out you're asking the wrong question. What woman? What morning? What's going on in her life? That's how you figure out how she feels. Turns out that. Uh, it's not that much different from asking yourself how anybody feels under a particular set of circumstances. I mean, it's not difficult for me to say, well, my wife is going to hate this movie. You know? I know her. I know the movie. I, it's an easy call. 
And if you just can be as specific as possible about the circumstances of your character's life, uh, the problem becomes extremely solvable. Final question. Yeah. Um, Jamie Furness, I'm from Canada, Oxford University. Um, I'm just, uh, Mark Twain said writing is the application of your backside to a chair. Um, and I'm just wondering whether you did other things while you were writing and whether you think a person can be both a writer and have sort of a day job or if it's something that is necessarily all consuming. I'll be perfectly honest. Um, I come from one of those families where um, I knew I was not going to starve and I wasn't going to have to earn money and I was going to be fine, which incidentally I, I highly recommend. And <laughs> it, it, makes, it makes the job of becoming a, a writer vastly easier <laughs> because um, I didn't have uh, the distraction of having to go to the office every day, of having to worry about the paycheck. I, I am in awe of people who do both things at the same time because for me, Writing a novel was a complete immersion. I had a family, a wife and children. It seems like a long time ago now because my son just got married recently. But at the time, they were you know, little kids. And um, that takes a lot of energy. Um, and, and that already seemed like a full, very full life to me. So that and a job, it's difficult. People do it. But it requires that much more um, diligence, I think. Thanks very much. Thanks.